Hello and welcome to the Comlex Podcast. I am your host, Jared, and I'm here to provide some extra material for your board study. And not just material for your board study, but Comlex study. You got to take it. You want to ace it. And guess what? Nobody cares about DOs enough to put out quality, complex board material. So I am here, for those of you who like audio, for those of you who like to reframe your study in a kind of a different way, a different approach, that's not sitting down and looking at your book for hours or just doing more questions. And to be honest, a lot of you traveling, you're driving, you're flying. I don't know what you're doing. You could be sitting at home, you're cleaning your apartment. That's where the podcast comes in. And what you'd expect here is uh, most podcasts, we're going to try and take two high-yield topics Uh, 20 minutes apiece, the, uh, a lot of data, I don't know if it still pans out, but you know you're always told 20 minutes is uh, the maximum time allowed for your brain. Uh, that's maximum learning. So we're going to do two 20-minute sessions, and the uh, topics we're going to cover are going to be uh, what I think is a little different than how most people cover this stuff. Uh Instead of just going by, hey, we're going to do 20 minutes just straight up and down the GI system, uh, we're probably going to do a little bit of that. But for the most part here, we're going to take an interesting part of a question, an interesting apart, uh, a different approach to these questions. We're going to find uh, qualifiers in the questions, something that they want to stick out to you. We're going to find something that they're always going to give you in the answer choices. And we're going to kind of back engineer that and kind of group the session around the best way to group these disease processes, to group these differentials out, as opposed to uh, just going straight up and down. I've got no problem with that. Uh, But, you know, that's how everything else is organized. So we'll try to do a little different here. Uh, we'll also keep it fresh. Uh, we'll take a little study break in the middle of the podcast uh, to feature some some music for some up-and-coming artists, stuff you've never heard, some interesting stuff that might vary. Uh, if you don't like it and you're just in a hurry and you want to crush your board study, then just uh, you can skip through it. But if you're driving, it's always a nice little break uh, so you don't fall asleep and crash into a... Uh, Highline pole. We'll keep it fresh. All right, gang. Today, we're going to go over autoantibodies and the various ways that they're just going to dump a bunch of those antibodies out and make you sort them out. We're going to sort them out of here. And then the second part 
is some osteopathic stuff. We're going to go over ribs, which I think is high, high yield. Um, so if you have any questions, hit us up. If you've got any comments, hit us up. If you want to review this podcast on iTunes, I encourage you to do so. And it will stay around and keep providing quality content for osteopathic medical students. So you guys can ace your boards and go change the world. All right? We'll get right into it. Here is episode one. Today we are talking autoantibodies, the wonderful game of the mix and match, trying to figure out which autoantibody is going to correspond with the clinical vignette they're going to give you. They all look the same. They sit down there in the answer choices. You get some of it confused. We'll help you dig through that confusion. We'll help you remember some. And hopefully by grouping them this way and just hitting all of them at the same time as opposed to hitting them within their own individual systems, we can all kind of group these together and start to tease out uh, the mess here. So today, we're going to be hitting, while it is not an exhaustive list, pardon me, it is a pretty thorough list and I'm confident it's probably enough to get you going uh, on test day. So for those of you taking notes at home, or for those of you in the car, here's where we're headed today in this episode. We're going to be responsible for uh, committing to memory. These autoantibodies and their associated disease states. Anticentromere, antimitochondrial, antimicrosomal, anti-double-stranded DNA, anti-histone, anti-smooth muscle, anti-Jo, sometimes seen anti-Jo-1, depending on uh, if it's an older question you're looking at or not, and anti-SS. There's also some thyroid. Um, myasthenia's got some autoantibodies, uh, as well as the famous anti-GBM, but we're going to cover all those within some other episodes where they fit a little better. Do a thyroid episode, we'll do a renal episode, we'll do a muscle weakness episode. But these that we just talked about are the ones you'll see down in the answer choices or they'll just toss one of these in your vignette. And if you know these, then it's an easy question. If you don't, you're going to sit there and look at the screen. So let's get right into it. First one we're talking about today, antihistone, which is bingo drug-induced lupus. And you're going to get a question a lot like this. They're going to give you, somebody comes in, they've got arthralgia, malaise, they've got a rash, 
and they're going to give you somewhere in that vignette a clue about a drug they're taking. And the drug that they're going to give you is an inacetylated drug, which are the big four, procainamide, hydralazine, isoniazid, dapsone. They don't use it anymore in practice, but the procainamide used to be the big offender here. But so many people were coming up with this drug-induced lupus, it was a really, really high percentage. So they said, we had better just stop using that drug. Let's figure out some other way to anti-arrhythmic them. So the big one question you're going to get now is this latent TB question uh, where they're taking isoniazid. Who knows, they might even give you uh, a leper. And they got to take some Dapsone to get rid of their leprosy. There's some other drugs that can do this, but the the big four there, again, uh, is where they're going to take this. You've got to know procainamide, hydralazine, isoniazid, Dapsone creates a drug-induced lupus and can be diagnosed with uh, blood tests that reveal antihistone autoantibody. And the treatment for this is you just stop the offending drug. This is opposed to anti-double-stranded DNA, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, is the pathognomonic sort of big giveaway if they're trying to get you to go lupus. You're going to have a similar presentation, but the difference here is they're either going to give you the serology with a kind of a lupus diagnostic results, which means anti-double-stranded DNA, the anti-Smith, the anti-nuclear. We're going to talk all about lupus later in another episode, but that's what they're going to give you there. If they're going to give you a drug-induced lupus question, they're going to give you antihistone, or they're going to give you procainamide, hydralazine, isoniazid, and make you go from there. That's enough for that. We'll talk all about lupus later. Right now, we are moving on to anti-JO1, which is the bingo for polymyositis, dermatomyositis. They're going to give you something in the clue. They're going to give you a stem. This person is having a hard time climbing stairs or getting up from a chair or carrying groceries or picking up their children. They're not going to give you the heliotrope. Everybody goes, uh, it's, uh, it's too easy. They're going to make it easy, uh, harder than that. They're going to give you this trouble climbing stairs, doing the groceries because of the proximal muscle weakness that these people have due to their disease process. Now, the interesting one, uh, I don't know if they put this in a question, but you'll see it in the clinic. It will be uh, these, what they call Gotrans papules, which these kind of, uh, these nodes, these nodules, these bumps on the extensor surfaces on the hands. 
in the knuckles. Uh, Google it. Google it. Don't Google it if you're on the road. That's dangerous. But those papules, it's kind of interesting, uh, and that will definitely help you uh, diagnose these people in real life, uh, especially if they're wandering around getting the, trying to figure out what's wrong with them because they're red in the face. They've got this rash on their shoulders. They're having a hard time moving. And then you see this cutaneous finding, which helps you fill in the picture. So they're going to give you something like that. Uh, they, you know, they got the classic shawl sign, dermatomyositis, and the heliotrope. Uh, that seems too easy to me. They'll give you this person's red in the face and has trouble getting out of a chair. Real and cities kind of presentation. And then they'll make you come up with an Auntie Joe. Moving on next is anti-mitochondrial. Now, this one is interesting. This is where we start to get into the weeds of the trickiness of their autoantibody questions. Because anti-mitochondrial, at least to me, and anti-microsomal are too close for me to ever remember this well. And the disease associated with anti-mitochondrial autoantibodies is primary biliary cirrhosis. And it sounds too much to me like primary sclerosing cholangitis. So between all of that mess, we're going to try and sort this out right here, right now, and see if we can figure out a way to make this stick. So anti-mitochondrial autoantibodies is seen in primary biliary cirrhosis. This is what they're going to give you. Population here is, is almost key. It's 90 to 95% female, and usually they're going to give you the classic is, is she's in her 40s or 50s. The, the main presenting symptoms of this is they're just going to have this uh, pruritus and fatigue. And it's, uh, it's a really weird one. And there's not much they can give you there other than the antibodies. you got to have these antibodies, these anti-mitochondrial antibodies, which are present in about 95% of cases. The other thing that's interesting, it's less for the test, but interesting clinically, is this primary biliary cirrhosis is extremely associated with other autoimmune conditions as all autoimmune conditions are, but the one here seems to be Sjogren's syndrome, which we're going to talk more about later, is uh, seen as a coexisting condition, about 40 to 65% of people. There can also be some uh, autoimmune thyroid stuff going on here, but it's in a smaller percentage. And again, we do not want to confuse this with primary sclerosing cholangitis, which they're absolutely going to give you somebody with a history of inflammatory bowel disease. You're going to have a man, probably give you a man who has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and that is primary sclerosing cholangitis. That's the association there. The association that we want to know for today, primary biliary cirrhosis and anti-mitochondrial antibodies. 
antimicrosomal antibodies are seen in the one that they want you to know for the test is Hashimoto's. There's uh, more to be done with Hashimoto's that we will tackle later in a thyroid episode. But that is the one they want you to know for the test. This antibody is also seen in some something like 70% of autoimmune hepatitis cases. But the one that they want, at least that I've seen, is the Hashimoto's Association. When they're talking autoimmune hepatitis type 1, they're looking for anti-smooth muscle antibody. And I know this is getting a bit confusing, but all these autoimmune diseases, they, they share antibodies. So it's really which one has the strongest correlation, which one has the strongest connection, and which one do we want you to know for the test? So anti-smooth muscle, autoimmune hepatitis. And this is just going to look like a hepatitis situation. Uh, most, not most, there's a good portion of people that are asymptomatic and then some people who are mildly symptomatic. And it can go all the way to you're being undiagnosed and then all of a sudden have liver failure. But these people are going to have some sort of generalized fatigue, nausea, abdominal pain, maybe some itching. Sometimes the only thing that you'll find on these people is you'll just have a uh, a lady, 40 or 50s, with elevated liver enzymes. I, I wouldn't hope they'd put this on your test. I don't think this is a good one. But you will see this anti-smooth muscle antibody, and you'll need to differentiate it from everything else. Autoimmune hepatitis, anti-smooth muscle. Next is anti-centromere. Here we go. We're getting into some easier territory now, so bear with me on these last two, and they will be money. If you get these on your test, you will not miss them. And if you do miss them, then shame on you because they're easy. Anti-centromere is bingo crest syndrome. Anti-centromere, C-centromere, C-crest syndrome. And if you remember what the crest stands for, this becomes a very easy syndrome to remember. The C is calcinosis cutis. This is where we get the, you know, the limited scleroderma, uh, mo- mostly on the hands. You're getting those, uh, those changes there in the tissue. The R in crest syndrome is Raynaud phenomenon. You're going to get the blue, the purple, the purple fingers. They always feel cold. They got to wear the mittens. This one is the one they like to hit on the test because it's um, it's kind of like the climbing up out of the chair thing. They're going to give you a an activity that they have to do on a daily basis, and that is the E in crest is esophageal desmotility. They're having trouble swallowing, or they're getting choked on their lunch, and they usually don't do that. The S is sclerodactyly, and T is telangiectasia, anticentromere crest syndrome. Now we're moving on to anti-SS. This is the other gimme. SS, Sjogren syndrome. And the clinical presentation is pretty straightforward as well. 
You're going to have the, the classic dry eye, dry mouth. What they will usually go for here is the dental caries. You don't have that saliva, and it's this person who gets a bunch of dental caries. They've got bad teeth. That's how they will hit that dry mouth. The other one here is they may give you parotid gland enlargement, which has association with uh, a maltoma and the syndrome. Also, interesting enough, I don't think this is even close uh, to being test material, but it's interesting that these Sjogren syndrome patients, sorry, people first, okay, guys, these patients with Sjogren syndrome, they will have, not will, but it's associated with an acute interstitial nephritis. I didn't know that, which is interesting. That's going to be your kind of eosinophilic um, kidney situation. The only way they make they can make this hard is the other names for these antibodies, and I haven't seen them in the review material. I think they, at least on Comlex, they still are using SS, to my knowledge. It may change any moment now, so it's worth knowing the other names for these antibodies are anti-Rho and anti-La. That's the only way that this Sjogren syndrome question could get hard, is if you don't know Roe or law, you're like, I'm looking for SS. This person has Sjogren syndrome. And anti Roe is just SSA, and anti law is SSB. I don't think they're going to go too far as to which one of those is which. Uh, but I think knowing that those are there is enough. Anti SS, also known as anti Roe, anti law. And that'll get you. Some easy money if you get a Sjogren syndrome question and they want the antibody. So, to review here. Again, if you're driving, park up. If you're at home taking notes, here you go. We're going to go over the antibodies and their associated conditions real quick in summary. We have anti-centromere antibody which is associated with Crest syndrome, C for Crest. Antimitochondrial is primary biliary cirrhosis. Mitochondrial is primary biliary cirrhosis. Antimicrosomal Hashimoto's, anti-double-stranded DNA lupus. Antihistone is drug-induced lupus. Anti-smooth muscle is autoimmune hepatitis, type 1. Anti-JO or anti-JO1 is polymyositis, dermatomyositis. And anti-SS, a.k.a. anti-RO, anti-LAW, is Sjogren syndrome. On that note... I'm about Sjogren syndrome out myself. I'm going to grab some water, and we're going to take our study break here at the Comlex Podcast, and then we'll be right back into it with some more material after this quick break. The break today is brought to you by 
the melodic, the sensual musical stylings of the Colby Deets band. We'll see you in a second.
talking ribs we're talking chilies baby back ribs and if you know everything about your OMM and ribs you're going to be golden these are easy points if you know this you're going to get these and you're just going to be flying. Th- you're going to be flying through the test. Go answer some harder ones. Go s- go spend some time reading the hard ones because you can just knock these suckers out if you just know all of this stone cold. So start with the ribs. AKA thorax and rib cage. It's, it's important first to talk about the muscles of respiration because this is going to come back here in a second. The primary muscles of respiration are the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, the external, internal, innermost, subcostal muscles. These and the diaphragm are the primary muscles of respiration. The secondary muscles of respiration, which kick in when you have maxed out your ability to excurse a breath with your primary muscles. This is why you see you know, athletes uh, or tripoding. We talk about tripoding all the time. This is what you're doing. You're activating your secondary muscles of respiration, which are your scalenes, Peck minor, serratus, quadratus lumborum, and your latissimus adorsi. And that's important because we're going to use those muscles to treat rib dysfunction. And most importantly, we're going to use those muscles to answer questions correctly. It's also important, this could pop up on the test, is... Uh, What is a typical rib and what is an atypical rib? Uh, The mnemonic is about the ones and the twos. Because your typical ribs are 3 through 10. And your atypical ribs are 1, 2, 11, and 12. And this has got to do with uh, their structure and their function. Not to be confused with true, false, and floating ribs. Um, but typical versus atypical. One more time, atypical ribs, which is all you need to know because then that means you know the rest of them if you know which ones are atypical. One, two, 11, and 12. Those are your ones and your twos. Your true ribs, ribs one through seven because they attach to the sternum. Eight through 12, different story. 8 through 10, your false ribs, 11 and 12, floating, because they have no attachment anteriorly. It's also important to know rib motion, your pump handle, your bucket handle, your caliper motion. 1 through 5, pump handle. 6 through 10, bucket handle. 
That's easy. You just take the ten ribs, you split them in half. One through five, six through ten. Pump handle on the top, bucket handle on the bottom. You leave 11 and 12 out because they move in a caliper motion. Like when they're checking your body fat content. They're just going to poke you, poke you around. They'll get you on those motions sometimes. Um, so it is, it's important to know all of those kind of minutia. But it's really not that hard when you think about it. Especially now that you're listening to this. You get a nice review. The next step in this lovely process about the ribs is the dysfunction. Because this is where they're going to get your question from. They're going to give you a scenario clinically. They're going to give you exam findings. You're going to have to figure out the type of dysfunction, which rib to treat, and how to treat that rib. So here we go. Bite mnemonic is is going to get you a lot of points on your test if you can just use the bite mnemonic to sort through the question. B, bottom. I, inhalation dysfunction. T, top. E, exhalation dysfunction. And we're going to fully tie that together in just one second. But it's important that we don't get mixed up on inhalation dysfunction versus an exhalation dysfunction. Now, just like everything else, the dysfunction is named for what it can do, what it does well. All right, so then an inhalation dysfunction means that it inhales fine. It's got no problem coming up in inhalation. But when you exhale, it, it, it's stuck. It will not go down with exhalation. That's inhalation dysfunction. It likes to inhale. And that's exactly what they'll tell you in the clue. They'll give you a physical exam and say that I'm looking at a group of ribs and they like to inhale. They'll come up just fine, but they will not go down on one side or another with exhalation. We'll go over exhalation dysfunction just for thoroughness, but if you know one, you know the other. And if you know that the dysfunction is named for what it likes to do, you've got no problem. But here it is. An exhalation dysfunction likes to exhale. It has no problem during exhalation. However, when you inhale, it will not come up. This rib is held down. Now, it becomes essential to appropriately name these because this is how you're going to use the mnemonic. If it is inhalation dysfunction, you're going to treat the bottom rib. And if it is an exhalation dysfunction, you're going to treat the top rib. If you're at home, write it out. Bite. I'm sure you know it. I'm sure you've heard it. But if you haven't heard this, write it out. B-I-T-E. Bottom rib is the key rib. When treating inhalation dysfunction, and the top rib is the key rib when treating exhalation dysfunction. I'm only explaining that. A lot of people have trouble with this. 
Uh, so it's important to get it down. Uh, you're going to get questions. No doubt. No doubt. You're going to need to know how to treat an exhalation dysfunction on your exam. So let's give an example here. Let's say that we have ribs three through five. They like to exhale. They have no problem during exhalation phase. They move appropriately. But when the patient tries to inhale, it's not going so well. So what we have there is exhalation dysfunction and we're going to treat the top rib. And in this scenario, they gave us that the dysfunction was recognized in ribs three through five. So we're going to treat the top rib, which is rib number three. You click that answer, and you move on because you're a rib master. And you've got harder questions to deal with. All right, we'll, we'll do another one of those later. But that's the gist there, and that will take you very, very far in life. Now, the next step from that process is once we've identified the key rib and we say that we're going to fix this rib, they're going to ask you how you're going to do it. Inhalation ribs, it's no problem. It's easy. And they're not going to ask you a question about it because it's too easy. If you do, you answer it and move on. You're going to treat an inhalation dysfunction. That rib is, is up there. It's inhaled. So all you've got to do is push it down. You're going to use their respirations to guide that rib down. You're just going to apply pressure. But where the question kicks in is how are we going to treat these exhalation dysfunctions? Let's use that same example we just had. We had exhalation dysfunction in ribs three through five. We said that we're going to treat the top rib, which is rib number three. And we're going to use muscle energy to do that, to bring it full circle. We're coming back to those accessory muscles of respiration. And these are the muscles they're going to test you on, and these are the muscles you need to use if you're trying to pull an exhaled rib up. And this is very important to so take note. They will, you will see tons and tons of practice questions asking you which muscle you're going to use for the rib. And once you figure out which rib it is, it's so easy. You just click it and you move on. And that's what we're here for. We're here to help you on test day. So if you commit these to memory now, you will be saved later. You're going to use, for rib one, the anterior and middle scalenes. Rib two, and they love this question because it's different. Anything that's different stands out. It's testable. Rib two is the posterior scalene. If you see rib two, it's posterior scalene. If you see posterior scalene, you're thinking rib two. Ribs three through five are treated with pec minor. Ribs six through eight, serratus. 
9 and 10, latissimus. 11 and 12, quadratus lumborum. We'll go over that one more time just for review. Repetition is the key here. Rib 1, anterior and middle scalene. Rib 2, the posterior scalene. That's the one that they want to trip you up on. Rib 2, posterior scalene. Rib 2, posterior scalene. Rib 2, posterior scalene. Ribs 3 through 5, pec minor. Ribs 6 through 8, serratus. 9 and 10, latissimus. 11 and 12, quadratus lumborum. For those of you that physical people or you're thinking about the, the treatments right now as we're talking about it, if it helps, here's the treatment positions for those muscles. Uh, if you can kind of visualize, you know, your patient on the table and moving them through the different treatment positions in that stepwise fashion, you're going from uh, rib one all the way to the bottom. If that helps you remember, here it is. Rib one, remember they got their head laid on the table and they got the hand over there and they're swooning and they're just going to raise their head. For rib two, you turn the head 30 degrees away from the dysfunctional side and they're going to lift the head from the table. Pec minor, remember we're just going to block that isolate that pec, and they're going to try and push across. Serratus is the uh, the really cool. Uh, I like like um, Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He does that elbow thing when he's dancing. They always say he's using too much elbow. Uh, this is where that elbow comes in. Lat. We got the hand out, the arm out rather, to the side. And quadratus, you're prone. And uh, trying to get them to push into the table. All right, that might help some people. It's always nice uh, if you're a visual person to try and uh, remember those groups. And again, just like all these kind of natural groups that we've got assigned. You know, you've got that group of three in there, three through five. You've got a group of three in there, six through eight, um, group of two, group of two. Uh, so it's not anything crazy. You just got to remember it. All right, let's wrap this up with one case. This is not exactly how you'll see this on your complex, but it is good enough for today because it's going to pull out the same points that you're going to need. A patient complains of neck pain. After a thorough exam, you find that there are several muscles in spasm. The most painful muscle originates from the transverse process of the cervical vertebra and inserts onto rib one. Which muscle is it? Platysma, posterior scalene, sternocleidomastoid, or the anterior scalene? I hope 
those of you in the car, or those of you at home, said E, anterior scalene, because we're talking rib one. On further examination, the patient reveals that ribs two through six lag behind inhalation. What muscle would be used to treat this dysfunction if you were using muscle energy? One more time. Further examination of this patient reveals that ribs two through six lag behind during inhalation. They exhale fine. What muscle would you use to treat this dysfunction? The choices are anterior scalene, middle scalene, posterior scalene, pec minor, serratus anterior. We've got a lot of good choices there. We've got a pretty big rib group, two through six. So a lot of those are in play here. The ones that aren't in play are anterior middle scalene. They don't aid in the movement of any of those ribs, two through six. Cross them off. We've got two through six lagging behind with inhalation. That means they like to exhale, no problem there. It is exhalation dysfunction. So using our bite mnemonic, we're treating the top rib in this group. That is rib two. And you know the answer right there because it's rib two. Always posterior scalene. That's the one they want you. They want you on that one. Rib two, posterior scalene. So let's say that that question was uh, two through six and it lagged behind during exhalation. It had no problem being inhaled. It felt stuck up. We're going to treat the bottom rib in that group via the bite mnemonic, which is rib six. If rib two is posterior scalene, ribs three through five is pec minor, ribs six through eight, we're going to use serratus to fix that dysfunction. All right, hopefully that just gives you a little something, something extra during your studying to make sure you're brushing up on your OMM, OMT, whatever you want to call it, because uh, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be a lot of points, and it's going to be easy points. If you stay on it, you stay up, and if you understand it, it's really easy to uh, pump and dump this stuff or, like, you, you think you're going to cram, but it really, really, it's just such an easier a test, and it's a more fun experience if you go in knowing this stuff backwards and forwards, just stone cold Steve Austin. Uh, you're going to have a great test day. You're going to be clicking the ones you know the answers to, and you're going to move on to the ones that require more time because your OMM is going to be your savior, not the thing holding you back.